And we read in Acts 17, 22 to 28, this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you were very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every city has a reputation, characteristics that distinguish it uh, from other places. With an abundance of uh, illuminated historical architecture, Paris is sometimes called the city of light. Sometimes it's called the city of love. Uh, Either, I've heard it both ways, actually. Built over water, Venice is known as the city of bridges, although people in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, think there are actually more bridges in Pittsburgh than in uh, Venice. There's like, they, it's very, they believe that very truly. I'm not sure if it's true, but they believe it. Uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania is known as the electric city because it's one of the first cities to have electric streetcars. Uh, some less well-known places uh, are uh, Groton, Connecticut, the submarine capital of the world. Did y'all know that? Uh, every fifth person owns a submarine. I'm, I'm actually just kidding. That's not true. Uh, it's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a naval base there. Okay, so that's why it's called the submarine capital. Uh, Airly, airlines uh, sends unclaimed bags to a giant warehouse in Scottsboro, Alabama, the lost luggage capital of the world. Have, has anybody ever been there? It is, yes, it's crazy. You can see, you can find almost anything. Um, they sell it. So it's, you know, they wait until nobody comes and then they sell them. Um, if you find yourself hungry for a meal and a fortune in Petersburg, West Virginia, you're in luck because that's the home of the golden trout. Um, in Paul's day, the city of Athens was known uh, as the pinnacle of human intelligence and culture. Centuries earlier, uh, Greek philosophers like Socrates and Aristotle established schools that didn't just seek uh, factual, objective knowledge, but the parameters of reality and life itself. The citizens of Athens defined virtue. They pursued, pursued beauty through art and literature. They established the foundation of democracy. Even as Rome rose to power, Athens was the place to explore the mysteries of the universe. So every day, the center of town opened to a diversity of thinkers, people from all over, from Stoics, Epicureans, skeptics, cynics, worshipers of countless gods from across the known world, people seeking truth. A lot of people just showed up to be entertained because there are all these you know, fancy people arguing. Um, and they were there to debate the fundamental questions of human existence. 
For many, the answer to their most pressing questions revolved around how they could please or avoid displeasing a particular god or goddess. In that day and age, um, everybody had a multitude of, uh, they worshipped a multitude of different gods. In their worldview, every arena of life was controlled by one deity or another. There were gods for love or war or wisdom, success and wealth. Different gods controlled the weather, uh, the market, the harvest, the city, the home, the kitchen. Uh, they ensured, some gods ensured safe travel. And so they worshipped all of them. The people of Athens worshipped them all because if you didn't, you might make one of them angry. Um, and the people were often concerned. What if they neglected to worship a god they had never met or imagined? What if they missed one? Uh, what if they, yeah, what if they missed one? I can imagine them debating this kind of issue. Next up, gods we might have missed. None of us want to get struck by lightning because we forgot about the god of rubber ducks. I don't know if there is a god of shoelaces, but we don't want to get tripped up, do we, on a technicality? What if we missed the god of septic tanks? What kind of wrath might that god bring? People use septic tanks up here, actually. In the end, the people created one extra monument, one extra altar, to cover their bases for all the gods that they might have missed, just in case. Entering the debate at the center of the city, Paul knows the reputation of Athens, and he begins his sermon with the acknowledgement that, that they have a particular altar dedicated to an unknown God. He declares, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and that's what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul is coming in and talking about this unknown God. In the next few verses, Paul proclaims, that this God genuinely wants to be known and has left messages throughout our world so we might find our way back to him. When we stumble across these divine clues that he's left for us, this unknown God hopes that we'll seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. For Paul, both creation and the natural order of life are arrows that point back to this unknown creator. And we know what we're talking about. We know what he's talking about here. We see God at work in the beauty of creation. If we have any observation skills at all, we can affirm what David says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Uh, after looking at new images of the universe from the Webb uh, telescope, how many of y'all have looked at some of those pictures? They're beautiful. Uh, some of the astronomers who, uh, who were sort of looking at these new images, um, both some who believed in Jesus or in God and some who didn't, were overcome by this enormous sense of wonder. Some of them said that they silently were weeping as the pictures came in because no human had ever seen these galaxies up in the sky. We can recognize the fingerprints of God and how he created this universe, but also each of us. The Psalms tell us that we are wonderfully and fearfully made. 
reflecting the artistry of God's intelligent design. Every moment of goodness and spark of love, every blessing we have ever known is designed to serve as witness to the love of our wonderful Father. For Paul, the patterns of blessing around us have been ordained by God in order that we might recognize his steady hand and walk with him more closely than before. Everything that we see, all of the goodness and the beauty, is an invitation for us to walk with God. The unknown God, Paul says, does not want to remain a stranger. If we had eyes to clearly see, we would recognize his presence and his desire to be known. But somehow, in our lives, we still fail to connect the dots. Despite the overwhelming evidence that surrounds us, we rarely follow the trail of breadcrumbs that lead back to him. Despite his goodness, the clues he leaves are often hidden by the chaos of a broken world that tilts towards tragedy and despair. The past few years, with the pandemic and all of the social turbulence that came flooding in its wake, seems to have increased the uncertainty and instability of our world more than usual. We've had not just one year, but years of alarming disruption. But even as, even as we're getting past the pandemic, the brokenness of this world didn't begin in 2020. Things didn't get bad then. The chaos that we feel now has been present since the very first moment humanity rebelled against our God, and it continues to dominate even our happiest days. Led by the sin within us and the corruption around us, our souls more often find not hope, but despair, not clarity, but confusion. Conspiracy theories on both sides of the political spectrum make us doubt and fear instead of love our neighbor. Rather than contribute to healing or restoration, we assume the worst and hurt one another instead. Shakespeare wrote in King Lear that all's cheerless, dark, and deadly, and sometimes I think we feel like we can relate. Distracted by the broken world around us, it's hard, if not impossible, to see God at work. Despite Paul's explanation, it felt to the people of Athens and can still feel to us that God remains hidden. Even with the clues that we've been given about his goodness, our God feels unknown, even absent, like some clockmaker clockmaker that set the world in motion and stepped away. Like some some cosmic game of hide-and-seek, he may be out there, but we can't find him. But as Paul explains, humanity has always been very good at hiding from God and very bad at seeking him. Corrupted by sin, our failure to recognize the Lord's presence does not rest with him, but us. The pattern we have in our relationship with God isn't grateful awareness but uneasy avoidance. Ever since the garden, humanity has been hiding from the God who seeks them. We see this in the very beginning. Adam and Eve's first response to their sin in Genesis 3.8 was to hide from the Lord who walked with them every night in the cool of the evening. We do the same in our own lives in a million different ways. When God moves towards us, we tend to run in the opposite direction. When he calls our name and friends, he does call your name. We ignore his voice. 
God might be calling us, but we never pick up the phone. He might be sending us messages, but we never respond. But Paul believes the damage goes even deeper. If we could acknowledge the movement of God in our lives, we would eventually move toward him sooner or later. But we decline every invitation our God extends because sin has fatally impaired our ability to recognize his presence at all. Paul compares the human failure to see the obvious presence of God to a blind person stumbling in a darkened room, consistently missing what they want to find. In English, the phrase, feel their way toward him, uh, in this uh, scripture, can be translated as the verb to grope. Okay, to kind of, you know, close your eyes and try to figure out what's going on. Impaired by sin, we reach out for anything that might grant us stability and direction in this broken world, but we never find it. Sin blinds us to the presence of God and ensures that even if he were standing right in front of us, we would not see him. Isaiah 59 describes a human condition apart from God in a similar way. Isaiah writes this, We grope along the wall like blind men, like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as if it were twilight. Among the living, we are like dead men. On our own, we are blind. We wander around looking for someone who desires to be found, but never finding them. But the good news that Paul shares with the people of Athens and us is that our God wants to be found. And does everything in his power to make sure we find him. Unlike us, the Lord is incredibly bad at hiding, but profoundly persistent at seeking. As a child, Jesus would not have understood the principles of the game hide and seek. He just wouldn't have understood it. Like at all. He would have been very, very bad at this game. Instead of hiding, he would have walked around. He would have showed up next to his friends and said, hey, here I am. I'm, I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm I'm always going to be with you. John Calvin writes that God is not to be sought in a multitude of ways, and we needn't make any long journey to find him. And we must note the goodness of God in in that he places himself so closely to us, even the blind may stumble upon him. In Jesus, God stands in the middle of our dark world with a spotlight shining on him from every direction, shouting to each of us, here I am, can't you see me? I'm right here. On the other hand, Jesus would have been extraordinarily good at seeking, never stopping the game until everybody was found and brought safely home. Jesus does not wait for us to find him, but comes to find us first. In the Greek, the word for seek implies giving full intention and priority to a particular object or person and deliberately pursuing after. Throughout his ministry, Jesus proclaimed that he has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus searches for everyone separated from God the Father by their sin. And he spares no effort to reclaim that which has been lost. He will leave the 99 sheep to find the one that has wandered away because that one is precious to him. You are precious to him. He will exhaust every resource, travel any distance to find us. David alludes to God's pursuit of his children in Psalm 23, 6, when he writes, Surely your goodness 
and love will follow me all the days of my life. The Hebrew word for follow hints at the resolve of the commitment behind God's love, the fuel that fires the engine of his grace. Our God is beyond persistent. His goodness and mercy won't just follow his children around like some unobtrusive puppy kind of trailing after the one that it loves. His love is more like hounds that give chase during a hunt. More like hounds that give chase during a hunt. This past week, a video went around that, again, strangely illustrates the spiritual reality of God's persistent pursuit of his children. I watched this video and I thought, gosh, that's a lot how, it's a lot like how God finds us. So last weekend, just last weekend, a, a passing pizza delivery guy uh, named Nick Bostick noted a house on fire in Lafayette, Indiana, uh, sometime after midnight. Have any of you watched this video? Okay, you can. Go look up Pizza Guy Saves People. Uh, so worried that uh, the house was on fire, okay? So he was worried that the people inside might be asleep, might not know the house is on fire, so he parked in the driveway. He knocked on the front door to try to alert whoever was inside. There was no response, and he was like, well, I guess nobody's home, that's good. But he was worried that somebody might be in there. And so he went around the back, and he found the back door was unlocked, and he went inside, started shouting. And he found four children uh, in their bedrooms, whom he helped escaped out the back door and out into the sidewalk outside. He asked if anybody else was in there, and they said, oh, yes, uh, uh, the little girl, uh, a six-year-old, she's still inside. She's not here with us. And so he went back into the burning home, and he found her uh, in the smoke, found her in the bedroom crying and screaming because she was afraid she was going to die. He tried to go back downstairs where the fire had increased, so he jumped out uh, a second-floor window to safety. Uh, you can watch the last part of the part of the story from a policeman's body cam who shows up, uh, and this fireman, they're grabbing him and uh, the little girls. They stumble away from the burning home. Our God seeks us with the same kind of urgency, running into the fire to save his children so they might not die but live. Our God pursues us throughout our lives before and after we come to faith so we might be encouraged as we walk through this broken world and remember that no matter what happens, he has promised to seek and be with us always. Best of all, our God promises to find us even when we run, even when we hide from him. There's no place we can hide, nowhere we can run, no situation in which he won't enter in order to find us And let us know how deeply he loves us. Every moment of our lives, our God relentlessly seeks us in Jesus, who endured even death so we might know the Lord of all creation loves and desires you. Our God wants to be found. We don't have to endlessly search for an absent God and convince him to speak to us. For in Jesus, our God finds us and tells us that we are loved, that we are his, and we have a part to play in his plan for the redemption of this world. In Jesus, our God comes so we might find not only salvation, but also purpose. Because when God finds us, when our eyes are opened and our hearts break free from the blindness of sin, we discover that he hasn't just rescued us, 
from sin and death, but calls each of us to follow him. He saves, but he also beckons us forward to join him in the work of his kingdom. He comes to us waking our hearts so we might help him find all those still stumbling in the darkness. Free to see what he has been doing in this broken world, we are called to move toward the hurt and the lost in our own lives just like he moved toward us. We are found. Friends, we are found so that our lives, our words, our actions, our decisions, our relationships might reflect the obvious, wonderful, amazing love of God and Jesus. So even when it seems hard to find traces of our Lord, even if you're going through something so heavy, it feels like God is absent, remember that he comes to find us so that our broken world might know the limitless depths of his love. Hallelujah. Amen.